KPBS On Demand is supported by Sally Ride Science, presenting Women in Leadership, featuring panelists Ina Garten, Michelle Hanabusa, and Margot Lee Shetterly, sharing their stories and discussing ways women can lead a better future. May 23rd on campus. Tickets at sallyridescience.edu. State officials try to fix a flawed COVID tracking system. If this glitch exists, what other glitches do we not know about? How do we have faith in data? I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Some Western states are testing the sewers to track coronavirus. You know, you can detect a lot of stuff in wastewater if you look. And a new series about diversity and inclusion in the theater world debuts on KPBS TV tonight. Stay with us for Midday Edition, coming up next. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com because we know how. Governor Gavin Newsom on Tuesday announced some good news, a significant drop in people testing positive for COVID-19. The very next day, we learned of a data snafu that puts those numbers and COVID test numbers across the state into question. The problem stems from an unexplained breakdown in an electronic system that transfers test results into a statewide disease registry. The unreliable data has left public health officials unable to gauge how the disease is progressing. San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher says positive test numbers from the county and local lab testing are accurate, but commercial labs communicate directly to the state. There's been a breakdown in that reporting system at the state. They're working to rectify it. Our team has been in contact with the state and are determining uh, how many tests we're missing and over what time frame. Joining me to discuss what we know about the problem with the state's data system is Anita Chabrier, state politics and policy reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Anita, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Maureen. How does this data reporting system usually work and how long has it been broken? The way it usually works is that commercial labs just automatically send their test results in. So this is really just a tabulation. It's a count. Every day at at a certain point, every lab that has test results just shoots those over to the State Department of Public Health and they add them all together. We don't know exactly what is wrong. The state either doesn't know itself or or is deciding not to give us that information. We're not quite sure yet. But what we do know is that for at least about a week, perhaps longer, we don't know how long, 
at least some of those labs, their results have not been added into the overall count. We don't know how many or if it's a certain part of the state or statewide. We're really a little bit in the dark about exactly what this glitch means overall. How do state and public health officials rely on this data to make decisions about COVID response? It's one data point. So we do have other reliable data, such, such as our hospitalization and ICU rates. Those things are not affected. Those have come from a different source. But where the positivity numbers of, of tests come in, uh, one, it lets us know how prevalent it is in, in our state and in various locations. And two, it's an earlier marker of what we can expect in our hospitals. So where that number plays in is one, what, what's open and what's not, right? If there's a ton of positives, it keeps those uh, restrictions in place. But if there's a ton of positives, it also tells us that we can two to three weeks from now expect our hospitals to be hit. And if we're not prepping for our hospitals to be hit in two or three weeks because we don't know, that can really uh, impact whether we can handle it in our hospitals, whether we have the ICU beds, whether we have the medications, whether we have the staffing. So it is used to determine which counties are and remain on the state watch list as well. Now, counties have said this will also impact contact tracing. How does that work? Well, if you don't know who's positive, you can't trace their contacts. So right now, the county is not getting the information about who is positive with these missing test results. And so they're not being traced. So we have no idea, you know, do you have 10 people out there that are infected and we're not tracing? Or do you have 100 or do you have 1,000? We just don't know how many people are involved in this glitch. And so really contact tracing is, is stopped for all of them. It just doesn't exist if you don't have the test results. Now, you said that this data glitch doesn't affect what we know about hospitalizations or deaths in the state. What are those numbers telling us about the virus now? So our numbers of uh, hospitalizations and deaths have actually stabilized a little bit, which is good news. We're not sure if it's a plateau or a decline. The ex experts I've spoken to said they believe that overall in the state that that plateau will hold. But there's parts of the, the state, such as the Central Valley, where we're just seeing steep, steep rises in these cases. And so those hotspots are going to continue to be of real concern. Are state public health officials telling laboratories maybe to not report to the registry, but to, to report directly to the counties? Some county health officials are trying to gather those results on their own, are asking labs to report directly to them and, and trying to find those types of workarounds. But that's a real uh, burden of labor that they weren't expecting. And it, it's kind of an ad hoc on the fly system to try to get a handle on this. Really, we need CalReady fixed before we'll have a clear picture of what's happening again. CalReady, which is the state disease registry that all that information is supposed to go into. So uh, now you've reported that one of the main concerns is the impact this data glitch may have on public trust about what officials say about the virus. Absolutely. I mean, I think all of us are far more interested in, in case counts than we ever thought we would be, right? We, we all want to know what's happening in the state to get an insight into our own lives, into when our kids might return to school, into when our businesses might reopen. And when you have a data glitch like this, I think it, it really throws people psychologically. 
all of a sudden, none of us know where we're really at. And I think that's very difficult. And so when I spoke to experts yesterday, that was one of their concerns. Well, if this glitch exists, what other glitches do we not know about? How do we have faith in data when we're finding out that that data is flawed? And so I think that that's something that the state really has to consider is how do they instill that faith in people that what they're telling them is accurate. Any estimate as to when this state registry data will be fixed? No, my my understanding is, is that as of now, there isn't a hard date, although they are working on it. I've been speaking with Anita Chabrier, state politics and policy reporter for the Los Angeles Times. And Anita, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Maureen. Right now, there's no good way to predict where the next potential coronavirus outbreak will be. So far, testing is reliant on nasal swabs and, in some cases, a long wait for the results. But many states in the West are looking to get a handle on the disease by diving into the sewer. Luke Runyon from KUNC in Colorado has more. Inside the wastewater treatment plant in Fort Collins, Colorado, Jason Graham opens the door to a little plastic cabinet. Oh, it's taking a sample right now. Graham is in charge of this facility. Even with our masks on, where we're standing, the air is a little ripe, but nothing overwhelming. This is the city's biggest wastewater plant, able to treat up to 23 million gallons a day. This is the end of the sewer. Yeah, this is the end of the sewer. Okay. And throughout the day, a five-gallon plastic jug in that cabinet slowly fills up with raw sewage. Or the three P's, if you want to get technical. So poop, paper, and pee. Around the world, wastewater plants have become unlikely tools in the fight against COVID-19. Waste for more than 100,000 people flows into this plant every day. And by sampling it a couple times a week, scientists are able to get a sense of whether it's spreading or on the retreat. You know, you can detect a lot of stuff in wastewater if you look. And um, a lot of times people don't look, but if you look, you know, there's a lot there. Studies show people infected with the virus shed it in their stool, often days before they start showing symptoms, if they feel sick at all. You also pick up asymptomatic folks, you know, that are home, don't even know they have it, but they're shedding it in their, in their stool. This facility is one of more than a dozen in the state that will soon be regularly testing sewage for the coronavirus. It's part of an emerging partnership among wastewater districts, the state, research universities, and private biotech companies. Similar programs are already online at plants in Arizona, Utah, Nevada, and California. You know, we can get an idea of the level of infection within a community without having to swab everyone in the community. Rose Nash is a researcher at GT Molecular, which is one of the private companies working with Colorado. She says the most promising thing about this kind of testing is how it can become an early warning system. And that, you know, the hospitals can prepare for that, you know, change in their ICU capacity. But there are limits to what wastewater can tell us. Susan DeLong is a civil engineering professor at Colorado State University. She's part of a team that will be testing wastewater samples from across the state. The best interpretation is going to come from trends because there is, to, to date, we don't have um, an absolute correlation between the concentration in wastewater and the number of people that are sick. Meaning, at least for now, this testing will be almost like taking a whole city's temperature at once. 
from week to week, is it going up or down? Is it getting better or worse? We will be able to look at this data and say, okay, I feel good that my kids are going to go to school today. Or, you know what, there's a reason that we need, we'll need to stay home again. You know, so there is a sense of, of power with knowledge. As the program evolves, DeLong says it's possible to detect more contained outbreaks. Like you could move the sampling machine upstream of a wastewater plant and fill that plastic jug from the sewage coming from a single hospital, a college dormitory, or a neighborhood. Anything we can do to get a kind of early warning and a leg up on the problem is incredibly valuable from a public health perspective. John Putnam is a director at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Especially given that the investment is relatively limited compared to individually testing tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. But with all things COVID-19, Putnam says his department won't be jumping to conclusions early on. It's a new virus. We're barely, you know, a little over six months in. We'll know more in six months than we do now. Once the state's program is officially up and running, tests for all the participating wastewater utilities will take place twice a week over the next year. I'm Luke Runyon in Fort Collins, Colorado. This story is part of ongoing coverage of water in the western U.S., produced by public radio station KUNC in Colorado and supported by a Walton Family Foundation grant. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. Over the years, audiences at the Old Globe, La Jolla Playhouse, the San Diego Opera, North Coast Rep, and other local theaters have appreciated how directors have embraced diversity and inclusion among playwrights, directors, and actors. Now a new interview series called Theater Corner that focuses on diversity and inclusion in the national theater scene debuts tonight on KPBS television. The host of this new series, Michael Taylor, along with actress Wendy Raquel Robinson, spoke with KPBS host Mark Sauer. Here's that interview. Well, Michael and Wendy, welcome to Midday Edition. Glad to uh, be you, here, Mark. Mark. <laughs> We're very happy to be here, Mark. Well, Michael, tell us about Theater Corner. What's the concept behind your show? The concept has perhaps everything to do with uh, why and how it started. And so uh, when, I, when I joined the, the board there at the Old Globe, uh, I had already uh, attended plays there uh, prior to that. And, and, and one thing I noticed uh, each time that I would attend a play, uh, there's perhaps maybe a handful of people that actually look like me in the audience. And so when I became directly involved with the Globe, I, I, I took the initiative to sort of address that in my own little way. And so uh, uh, Barry Edelstein, the artistic director, he, he actually had uh, black actors performing on the stage there uh, as, in, in the Shakespearean plays as well. But I, I, I didn't think the black community may have been aware of that. And so I decided to start interviewing these uh, black actors. And, and back then, Theater Corner was a print interview series, and, and we were published in the Voice and Viewpoint 
uh, newspaper, which is the oldest black newspaper in San Diego. And so the, the, the objective was to perhaps normalize the idea of attending theater, just like uh, the idea of a, attending a sports event or a concert. It, it's a normalized consideration. And so this, this was my, uh, this was the approach, this was the purpose. And, and then it just sort of naturally evolved into filming the interviews. Now, uh, the first several episodes are done. They're ready to air starting this uh, weekend, Friday night and Saturday afternoon on KPBS television. And Michael, tell us about this first episode. You interviewed the actors performing as Nat King Cole and Sammy Davis Jr. in a musical. That would be uh, Dooley Hill and Daniel J. Watts. Uh, Daniel J., I want to hear a little bit from them, and I'm going to set up a, a little soundbite here. Daniel J. Watts, um, who plays Sammy Davis Jr., he's also a cast member of Hamilton, the theatrical phenomenon created by Lin-Manuel Miranda, which won 11 Tony Awards and the Pulitzer Prize. And let's hear a clip of you asking him about what drives him to move back from television to the stage. The thing about stage is that there's this, this immediate automatic partnership that you have with the audience. There's mm. an agreement, you mm. know. Um, there's an agreement that we have to this moment, to this time. And you also understand this is live theater. Something might go wrong here. <laughs> you know, we don't have the option to say, you know what, cut, let's right, do that right. again and like splice it together and put together this perfect polished thing. Mm -hmm. There's this element of like, oh wow, this is happening before my very eyes. And Michael, what were you going for there? What insight about acting were you after from Daniel J. Watts? This distinction between uh, performing in film and television as, a, as opposed to performing on stage you know, to, to try to, to squeeze out the, the, those, those differences because not all television actors actually performed in theater. And so this is, this is what I try to get. And so when young actors are watching this interview, perhaps these are, are very useful insights uh, or perhaps even motivation to, to experience uh, acting on the stage. And Wendy, as a woman of color in theater and on TV, how does your experience compare with that of male actors like Dooley Hill and Daniel J. Watts? You know, I've seen men get so many more opportunities in terms of even longevity and age. I, I use the Morgan Freeman uh, analogy, and there's not many women um, that are able to have, you know, a career as long and as sustainable uh, on camera as, you know, your Morgan Freemans. And it just seems like there's so many more opportunities for uh, men in general. And then if you were to break it down to African-American males and females, there's so many more roles for the African-American male. But I, I am optimistic and I'm seeing um, so many women get behind the camera, behind the lens, you know, creating stories, directing. Like myself, I'm honored to be uh, producing now and, um, you know, moving up that ladder and creating power positions for not only myself, but other women of color. Wendy, are you still working? You're still managing to, uh, to act at this point? I've done two shows. Uh, one was for the OWN Network and the other was for uh, Bravo Television. But they bring out, I call it a TV in a kit. They brought out a, uh, a suitcase, one of those pl big plastic Pelican cases, and they were filled with uh, three iPhones, one laptop, and uh, a ring light, microphones, and we set it up. They hooked it to our router in the house, and 
turned it on and everything was via Zoom. And we shot two different episodes of two different, completely different shows from my house. And I saw at least 20 jobs just go out the door, literally. <laughs> so if, yeah. if that's the new norm, and even the producers that were calling the show were at home. So it's it's been interesting. It's been innovative. It's been out of the box thinking. Um, even with my conservatory, we haven't uh, missed a beat. We've been fortunate enough to continue on in instruction. We've been doing it via Zoom. Well, the show must go on one way or another, I guess. Exactly. I've been speaking with uh, actor, producer, and instructor Wendy Raquel Robinson and Michael Taylor, host of Theater Corner, premiering tonight, Friday, August 7th, on KPBS 2 television and airs on KPBS TV on Saturday afternoons at 4.30. can also be streamed on kpbs.org. Thanks very much to you both. Thank you, and make sure you tune in to Theater Corner. <laughs> thank you thank you mark i really appreciate uh, allowing us to come here kpbs on demand is supported by bill howe plumbing heating and air restoration and flood services family owned and operated for three generations bill howe has been serving the plumbing heating and air and water damage needs of the san diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals bill howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and hvac emergency needs 24 hours a day seven days a week bill howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job whether you're in need of an hvac installation plumbing or water damage restoration in san diego they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhow.com because we know how.